Welcome to the special 2020 Thanksgiving episode of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And here's an ode to a Brown and Black Thanksgiving from stand-up comedian Leanne Lord. But isn't Thanksgiving always different? Okay, you start out at the kids' table, and then at some point, you get promoted to the grown-ups' table. One year, you're sitting in the back seat while your parents drive to Grandma's house. The next, you're driving yourself so you can dip out after dessert to go meet up with friends. Thanksgiving dinner is always at Grandma's house, and she cooks everything. And then one year, it moves to Auntie's house, with everybody bringing a dish, because Nana can't do it all anymore. And did you ever notice that it's always Grandma's house, even though Grandpa lives there too? One year, you bring a date to Thanksgiving dinner. The next, you bring a spouse or a baby. And everybody says how much that baby looks like Aunt this one or Uncle that one or just like Nana, who passed away last year. Or was it the year before? Then one year, the dinner is at your house. And it's a lot of freaking work. You try to get one of your siblings or cousins to do it next year, the ones who are even there and not spending this year at their in-laws. You try sweet-talking that aunt who used to do it, but she declared last year that she was retired from it, and she meant it. But you get her to agree to make the mac and cheese, because although you have Nana's recipe, it's not the same. One year, your junior in college, when did that happen, can't make it home for Thanksgiving. Or they can, and they bring along two friends. You put them at the kids' table. You don't call it that, but you're thinking it. And suddenly cutting the turkey is an even bigger deal because it's the first year your dad's not there to do it. And then your youngest, who's been married for five years, wait, what? Calls to invite you to Thanksgiving dinner at their house. But can you please, please, please bring the cornbread because nobody makes it like you. And you're thinking... Nobody made it like your mom, who looks just like the newest grandbaby who's toddling now. You think it might be nice to have dinner at someone else's house for a change, but the kids live in another state, and it's a really long drive, and it's been a really long year, and the C word, COVID, and you say, can we skip it this year? And instead of resistance, you hear a sigh of relief as they confess, This is a lot of freaking work. You smile and say, yes, yes it is. But you promise to be there next year. You'll bring the cornbread and the mac and cheese. But you're gently told that cousin whoever makes it better. You harumph, but agree. True, true. And you wonder how the family will deal with Thanksgiving being different this year. The same way they do every year. And you can follow Leanne Lord or hear more of her comedy or her essays or her commentary at VeryFunnyLady.com. You put in Very Funny Lady on any social media, you'll find her. One of the things we wanted to do here on this show is not only talk about what Thanksgiving might have meant to us and our families, but that this is maybe a very different Thanksgiving for most people. Like, you may not get to see the family. You may not get to do what you normally would do. So we felt what we could do is 
feed you in a different way. And the best, in my opinion, the best way to feed your soul is with art and culture. So that's what we're going to present to you. We've got two courses for you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You could say that uh, our two guests bring a lot of influence and insight into what the arts represent for this 2020 and how much of it we really need in our lives. Eduardo Villaro is the artistic director and CEO of the Ballet Hispanico, and we're going to be talking to also musician Otura Moon, who is the leader of a musical group called Ife, which fuses Afro-Caribbean music, dance hall, electronica, rumba. Mike, it's like a cocktail of music over here of brown and black. What is Uh, Speaking to both of them, I'm just reminded of, and and it can't be emphasized enough, I think, just the power of art, how transformative it is. Whether it's your own culture or another culture, just opening yourself up to it, it it, it transforms you. That's right. So, Mike, what do you say? I'm getting a little hungry over here, man. Uh, If you don't mind, let's start with the first course over here. Let's set the table, if you don't mind. Um, no, 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 no. Before you set the table and we serve this course, I have a question for Jack Rico. Okay. I want to know what Thanksgiving was like for you as a kid. Mm. Then what was Thanksgiving like for you as you became, you know, a young adult? And what is Thanksgiving like now? Or is it different every year now? I have been around around thanksgiving it's it's not always been in my house it's been at a friend's house at a aunt's house at a it's always been somewhere outside of the house since i was a kid i remember that we used to celebrate thanksgiving a latino thanksgiving right uh, with all the american assimilated <laughs> traits because in colombia they don't celebrate it um so oh, really okay yeah there is no thanksgiving out really outside of america it's a that's true. it's a created that's true. you know american custom and um it was here where I was like, kind of realized that when I left New York for the first time and travel outside of the United States, I noticed that, like, hey, Thanksgiving is kind of special in America. But then as I got older, I noticed that Thanksgiving shouldn't be celebrated the way we celebrate it. <laughs> <That's for laughs> Thank sure. you, history books. <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, we're celebrating the, the, the wiping, the genocide of the Native Americans. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, okay. And then um, I was living alone in Hoboken, just began my Univision career. And honestly, man, I, since I didn't have my mom and dad were in Florida, I kind of went to friends' houses for Thanksgiving. Didn't really spend it at home. I didn't. I've never had a solo Thanksgiving, and unfortunately, I know that a lot of people are having solo Thanksgivings this year because of the pandemic. Two hundred and fifty thousand people have already died from COVID, with an administration that can't get itself together in any way to try and help out. So, for those of us that are not ailing at the moment, you know, we have a lot to be grateful for, and that is health. Luckily, unfortunately for me, Mike, um, I'm my brother and my sister in law, and I both have been quarantining for 14 days. We want to see each other. I'm picking him up, you know, in New York City to come upstate and have a Thanksgiving up here, you know, which is the first time that I've had a Thanksgiving uh, in upstate. And I've had this place for about 10 years. So, I'm excited about it. Cold up here, you know, it has all the autumn Thanksgiving elements and ambiance to kind of have that true sort of American Thanksgiving and to really thank so much that has gone wrong in 2020 with something that that I can 
see my family and have a good meal and be able to afford that meal. So a lot to be grateful for, Mike. Wow. You know, I'm picturing like, you know, a Netflix special, the Jack Rico. <laughs> but, a brown and black Thanksgiving. Uh, a brown and black Thanksgiving. No, well, you know, that's, that's great because I have to say, I do think that Thanksgiving is culturally okay. It is whatever it is. You know, there's certain foods. But as you get older, it does become something specific and personal. And once you realize the, let's just say, the falseness of the concept of Thanksgiving, you, it has to become something of your own. You have to decide what does it mean to you. So I appreciate you sharing that. Tell us about our first course. Well, our first course. Um, do you want to set up the table or? Uh, well, we the, well, well, the, I think you know. <laughs> I, I thank you. Can see uh, the potatoes coming I'll over take, the table right I'll now. I'll take Mike. another glass of that. There, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Nice. All right, yes, pile that on. <laughs> I'll have a second uh, heaping. Uh, uh, leave the bottle. Leave the bottle. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so our first guest at the table is going to be Eduardo Villaro. He is the artistic director and CEO of the Ballet Hispanico. And he's here to talk to us about a couple of things. One of them is the arts. We know that 2020 has not been kind to the arts. A lot of institutions have closed indefinitely. Some of them have even shuttered. But the Ballet Hispanico has actually been doing quite well this year, thanks to so many uh, factors that have contributed to that. And we want to know what he's doing with the Ballet Hispanico, which is a Latino dance institution in America called one of America's cultural treasures by the Ford Foundation recently. And we want to know what Ballet Spanico is doing to currently challenge racial injustices, which is an extreme heavy topic in the United States right now. And I'm sure that it's trickled down to almost every foundation and institution that we have. Eduardo Villaro is the Artistic Director and Chief Executive Officer of Ballet Hispanicos, America's leading Latino dance organization, and is a frequent speaker on the merits of the intersectionality of cultures and the importance of nurturing and building Latinx leaders. He is a well-respected speaker on such topics as diversity, equity, and inclusion in the arts. Eduardo, welcome to the Brown and Black Podcast. Oh my God, que honor. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you both for having me. Absolutely. Uh, congratulations on Ballet Hispanico turning 50 in 2020 and uh, being recognized as one of America's cultural treasures by the Ford Foundation. As we were talking, you know, our nation right now is confronting and facing a country in, in a moment in time that we are bereft of arts and culture, at least live arts and culture because of the pandemic. And I mean, you look at Broadway, you look at movie theaters, you look at the Lincoln Center. These are just some examples of what has gone away. And I kind of wanted to get your perspective on how much of an impact do you think that that has left on our nation? That's a really great question and something that we are all kind of mulling and thinking about and seeing. I mean, there's just the arts. I just want to start by saying that Art, performing arts are essential and they're essential because they remove mm. us from capitalistic structures that impinge on our perspective and also impinge on our ability to communicate as human beings, as one um, a group of people and not uh, the divisiveness that we see. So when you are in a performance, 
you remove yourself, hopefully, from, ev- from all of that, from the structures that are um, around us, because you're taken to an alternate space. You're mm-hmm. taken to a space that requires your intellect to switch modality. It requires you to um, be vulnerable. And you know, we, our structures keep us from being vulnerable. It's one thing we, we fight uh, and we use the terms communication, right? So, but it's really about vulnerability. And so, so this yeah. is why the arts are essential uh, because it, it l- relieves us from the notions of who we should be and what we should look like. I think that we, we are going to continue to make work, all of us, as artists, and also show the kinds of um, education. We know that we have, we're all different learners and we learn in different ways. And that's another thing the arts gives us, the opportunity um, to learn via this form um, this, uh, and, and the abstractness that comes with it. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on just how, your, your thoughts on how art not just unifies us, but really is part of what it is to be human. Like without it, we're not complete. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, I think I want to take this a little bit to, um, to say not only does it um, feed us in many different ways, it frees us. Mm. And it could be a champion for freedom. And it could be a champion for voice. Um, I'm going to take Bally Hispanico as the example, of course. Um, in 1970, a Latina woman, Tina Ramirez, choreographer, dancer, decided that there was not enough um, uh, voice and representation of the Latinx at that time Hispanic community. So she went out and the maverick that she is, she developed Ballet Hispanico so that, you know, black and brown young children can see themselves represented in dance and that our cultures, our essences are also put on a platform. That is social political advocacy via the arts. It is not just only, I'm going to make a dance company. For us, for BIPOC people who have been um, marginalized and also disenfranchised, it developed a platform for um, our communities to see ourselves in line with everyone else, because that's the problem with uh, supremacy, right? It keeps you from saying, that's not what our, our, our ideal model of what Um, we should look like or what the art form should look like. It does oppress you in that way that you're not at the tastemaker level. And so I think that, that organizations like Ballet Hispanico, um, and there are many others, Alvin Ailey, Dancing of Harlem, you know, black and brown organizations that had these incredible founders, um, even though they might not have understood exactly what they were doing, um, were revolutionary and continue to be so. These organizations continue to be so because they are putting our communities and diversity on the table just by mere existence. Then you go into your programming and you see how it builds and builds and builds. Um, I continue to, to utilize something that Tina Ramirez says. When you change a student, you change a family, you change a community. I take it further and say, and then you change a country. 
right? So, so I think that, that and again, we, we keep going back why arts are essential. Um, because it gives you the, the platforms for change. How does the work that you're doing with Belay Spanico fit into the conversations about racial and social justice with brown and black people? Like we know that the pandemic definitely took out more brown and black people uh, than other groups. How does the work you're doing now help contribute to bettering or improving upon what we see in our country? I think that the work we do, especially because we um, talk about the culture via the voices of the artists, and those artists are black and brown choreographers, um, takes you to spaces, right? They lead you into spaces of um, discovery and of understanding culture in a different way um, or in, in a new way. So I think that um, via the artistic development of, of creation, of work, um, we add to the, the diversity dialogue and we add to the inclusion dialogue because we're including, we're making sure that these voices are heard, that it's not always just, um, you know, the, the well-renowned choreographers who had the privilege and the position um, to set a standard. We are now pushing that standard and saying, um, but wait a minute, you appropriated from us you took some of our things and you made yourself um, wealthy and famous. Now you need to listen to us because our voices need to be part of that. And so both the, um, the, the emotional and the monetary um, shift has to happen. And by that means is that, you know, our artists are put on, on the pedestals. Our artists are paid the same. Our artists are um, included in, at the same level that that these other um, well-known and I'm just gonna say it, white male um, makers who are you know who have eat, have taken over you know and put uh, place things into place uh, tastes into place for millennia. So I think that um, for for us that's that's the performance. On the other thing, Valley Hispanic was an education um, focused arts organization. Uh, the grassroots that Tina started with by taking a, a handful of young Latinas, taking them, some of them, taking them right off the streets and giving them uh, a different opportunity and perspective and trajectory in life is a very important tool for us as well. So what we're doing is we're continuing that education. We're broadening the impact by expanding the education offerings. We go into community centers. We go into schools. We've worked with migrant workers um, in California. We've worked with incarcerated youth, bringing them because incarcerated youth, there are youth. They're black and brown youth mainly. And so where are the areas that an arts organization can infiltrate um, to start switching the, the, the knobs, right? And, and giving perspective to people to say, hey, 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 wait, wait, I belong? Because I see this organization that is a, a standard bearer. So when I see these young black and brown kids coming into our school, I know that this arts organization has started a little mini revolution in each of them. You know, that legitimacy, you know, getting these grants, it, it really kind of cements 
arts organization for brown and black folks to show them, look, this is a legitimate art form. This is these we're doing something that is legitimate in the eyes of that structure that exists. So uh, if you could touch upon that, but the other thing I wanted to ask you was you were shut down like a lot of arts organizations for a while. Uh, and then you came back and I want to know what your thoughts are now that we've been forced through this pandemic and probably for longer to absorb art in a different way, to, to look at things differently. Theater has had to evolve. Virtual performances, that's an art form that's going to have to evolve for each discipline. Important, big questions. Uh, let me talk to, let me speak to legitimacy first. I think that the gift from the Ford Foundation to the first 20 organizations, we were one of them and we are very grateful of changing the dialogue within the funding community to focus on black and brown organizations is extremely important, timely, and necessary. And I say that because the word legitimacy is difficult because for many years, we were illegitimate, <laughs> right? In so many ways. And, and so, and we were like pet projects or we were the side yes. gig, right? Yes. It was yes. like, yeah. The backup plan. It's, it's the, like, well, there are a few scraps of, there are a few scraps of funding charity here. charity is what we were, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give millions to the Eurocentric white ballet. Thank you. Thank but, and, but I'll racial you capitalism. That's okay. racial capitalism. Absolutely. There right. it is. So, hashtag, so, hashtag. So that is why this is important. And to show, because sometimes all you have to do is show someone the door to come in, not to leave. So if these fund, these, we, we're, this is about um, restructuring you know, there's a lot of D, right? Delegitimizing, de this, de just deconstructing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to restructure. And I think that this will restructure in how um, uh, our, our capitalists and, and how our views of and our philanthropic views work. The system switches also to show that our work is as important. Our work is American. This is an American organization. We're not talking about some exoticized um, Latino that's coming from, we're not doing that. This is an American organization. And so I think that, that it reconstructs the, the notions of, of philanthropy in our country. So I hope that that continues to, um, uh, to expand. I was going to ask you about Be Unidos uh, on Instagram. I had the pleasure of being invited to be a part of that account um, and its messaging and advocacy. Can you tell everybody else about Be Unidos and the original programming that you're creating virtually to unite people in this time where, you know, we can't go out and watch a performance or, or, or pay a ticket to go uh, see a ballet Hispanico performance anywhere? Uh, talk to us more about what you're doing with your social media and the original programming to still maintain that level of, of deep connections with the community. So what we did was uh, develop a virtual platform called Be Unidos immediately as right after we shut down. Um, because, again, I, as the, the leader of the organization, I'm continuously concerned of how do we keep um, the energy of what we're giving these young people, these students, what we're giving to our, and everything we talked about, the diversity, the inclusion, the ideas, the dialogue, what we're giving to our audience, how do we keep it going? 
So, you know, the, the immigrant mind t- switches on and it's like survival mode. You know, mm-hmm. if there's a piece of bang, if there's a piece of bread, it can feed 10. We'll figure it out. Um, and so that's what we did with this platform. How do we feed our community? So we developed a platform of connection and we, we broke it up into the world needs inspiration, the world needs dance and, and dancing with each other. The world needs to see dance and to see our the work that we do as Latin, Latinx community. And the world needs to understand that we have a, a trajectory and that we have a past, it's 50 years. So how do we continue to celebrate 50 years? So we developed on a daily basis, we have an offering. Um, motivational Mondays, take a class Tuesdays, Wepa Wednesdays, which you get to see a performance <laughs> and then you talk, you get to, right? It's Wepa, dale. And, and you get to talk get to hear from me and the choreographers. And then you have um, Therapeutic Thursdays where you learn mind-body connection, uh, which is important for us during this very difficult time. And then Flashback Fridays was our opportunity to show things from the past and how Tina developed this organization. So that has really, uh, uh, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. We did it out of the love that we had for our constituents. It, it, it really developed very well. And, you know, we've reached audiences that we thought um, uh was going to be difficult, but we have people coming in from other countries. We've have people coming in from all over the country. And mind you, as a performing organization, we reach some of those areas in our, um, in our, our country. However, there are some that can't. And so I think the the idea of virtual uh, work is something that we're now thinking, well, how will that continue for our mission, our vision, how will that continue to support what we do when things go back to normal? Uh, you know, I, I'm just wondering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering what you think that, that normal is going to be because I, I feel like what we're experiencing. Uh, you know, there there may be some sort of a hybrid. You know, the 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 things that you begin here may continue and have more impact than you think. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. When we go back to um, one-on-one socializing, when we go back to being in the theater, when we go back to um, not feeling like we're being attacked at all times, because that's the feeling. And I just hope that the world um, understands that this is what marginalized people feel on a daily basis. So I hope that there is a unifying understanding of what it feels to to be scared on a regular basis. But I think coming back, it's going to be kind of need to roll out and the vaccine will help, I hope. I also think that um, there's going to be a lot more focus on taking back narratives and developing narratives for black and brown communities, Asian communities. I think that the the world will change and we will expect um, that it's things aren't taken for granted and you know, that other people's stories cannot be utilized and abused. Um, We still have a a fight ahead of us. We really do. We still need to, to call people out. Um, I'm not a proponent of cancel culture, but I, I do, I'm a proponent of education. And so sometimes you need to call someone out and say, this is why, you should not be doing this. 
please come. Let's, let's build more allyship. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's what we do, that we develop ways of being allies for each other. Not only, you know, um, with, with the majority community or however you want to call it, but within our own communities. We've got a lot of work to do within our own black and brown communities. Our internalized racism is real. We've had several guests on recently talk about uh, self-hate from our own communities. It's something that's been very uh, evident that we're now finally having these conversations to, to try and, uh, and discuss and, and feel better about. Can I ask him one last question? I, I just wonder, I think it is, it say something that in this time where everybody was uncertain and it was afraid, everybody turned to art. They started binging and watching and, you know, looking at theater, watching, you know, art is what has saved us. And I feel it will be in the future. Do you concur? A hundred percent. I concur. And I think that, um, you know, it's very easy to um, look at art and, and look at the, the, the different factions of it, right? There's the film industry that can work virtually, but that's a fallacy. Certain things like the shows, the pop shows that, that can bring us art, that's not in its totality. That are, those are little portions of art. We need to come together to experience waste of an artist. Eduardo, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you being on the show. Um, and if people want to check out Belay Spanico, um, do they go to the website? Do they go to the Instagram account? Where would you suggest people be more connected and start building a relationship with Belay Spanico? Yes, thank you so much. Um, our website is www.ballethispanico.org. And in Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, it's at Ballet Hispanico. Um, please join us. Uh, it's just an amazing place, and we have amazing artists um, to share everything we just talked about. And I really appreciate that you have um, this program. It's important to keep the dialogue alive because we can easily sit back <laughs> oh yes <laughs>Well, that was our first course, and I think it was pretty delicious, and there was quite a lot, <laughs> quite a lot to chew on there, I think. Absolutely. You know, and it's nice to have guests around the Thanksgiving table. Yes, and this is the Brown and Black Thanksgiving table. Uh, we're setting you up now for your second course. Oh, but before we get to the second course, Mike, I need to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, how are you going to be spending this Thanksgiving? I'm really curious, you know, what you're doing. Are you spending with family, solo? Are you going to be eating a lot, not very little? Are you taking out? Are you cooking at home? And what are you watching? Uh, how are you staying connected or are you completely disconnecting for this Thanksgiving? I do have something I'm planning to watch and, and it all encompasses, I'm, I'm going to probably spend it with my dad and what I've been watching with my dad because I never actually saw it. Like I watched the first two seasons and never saw it, but we just finished the fourth season. Now we're about to, we watched the first episode of the fifth season, but Game of Thrones. So we're probably wow, going nice. to binge some Game of Thrones and he's going to bring uh, the turkey dinner. But in terms of Thanksgiving, it's interesting, you know, when I said I was going to ask you the question, I then had to think about it myself, you know. When I was a kid, 
Thanksgiving always meant going around the corner to my Aunt Evelyn's house. Everybody in the family would get together. We'd see them all there at during Thanksgiving at my Aunt Evelyn's house. And different family members would bring different dishes that was their specialty, you know, my, you know, and, and we'd always Hey, man, talk. this is the only thing I know what to do. Exactly. Uh, but, but I do it really well. <laughs> Listen, the, and similar to what Leanne said at the beginning in her mini essay, after my grandmother passed, there was somebody else had to carry down her recipe for coleslaw, which at the time I didn't know that coleslaw didn't always, it wasn't always like carrots and raisins. I thought that was coleslaw because that's what my grandmother made. But when I got a little older, when I went to college, you know, something happened. I had a friend who was from Mexico and we'd become friends and he was, you know, he was here in America, so he, he had nowhere to go. He wasn't going to be going home to Mexico for Thanksgiving and then coming back. So he, you know, he lived in the dor- dorms or he had an apartment or whatever it was. I went to Parsons here in the city. So I invited him home to come to my house. His name was Miguel. And so Miguel came and I never forgot how grateful he was just to have somewhere to go for Thanksgiving instead of like sitting home alone, you know, in in a foreign country, whatever. When I got older and I had my own place, it became kind of my tradition because, you know, New York is one of those places where half the people you meet or more are not from New York. They came to New York to pursue their dream, whatever. They're from Minnesota, Wisconsin, D.C., California. And so a lot of times people don't have somewhere to go. So I kind of began this tradition where I would have like I I call them stragglers, you know, people who didn't have family Mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, and I, I would cook, and I, you know, I learned to make a turkey. I, you know, wow, look at you, Mike. That's right. I can get down on the a turkey. pastor that's of right, that's right. <laughs> of Riverside Drive. <laughs> so, so that became my thing. You know, I had stragglers. Hmm. So that was my. That's you know, that's kind of what I equate Thanksgiving. And and what are you grateful for for this Thanksgiving in 2020? I'm going to be honest with you. I almost feel guilty to say it. You know, even though I got COVID and recovered, and I, and I guess this is my first public announcement of that because I haven't really talked about it in any detail in any public forum, but I got COVID and, and recovered. But I will be honest, for me, so many things have happened this summer in terms of my career, in terms of this podcast, in terms of other things I'm, I'm working on. I've been busier than I have been. And... I've been doing okay, and I almost feel guilty because there's so many people who are suffering, so Mm -hmm. I am extraordinarily thankful, not only for all the blessings that have come into my life, but I'm thankful also I got COVID, and I'm alive, and I'm here. So all those kinds of things, going through something like COVID definitely gives you perspective, especially as you are aware of how many people who thought they were healthy or were otherwise healthy or had so many things to live for who are no longer here. So I'm very grateful for all that I have, but I am very grateful to be here. And I'm grateful that I can do the show with you, man, and that this new project has allowed us to come together in a form of unity, not not only as uh, as colleagues now, but as friends, man. And uh, I've been wanting to do a show with you for so long. I feel like we were already the Brown and Black show on the Highly Relevant show for like two years uh, we talked it about doing this for a long, long time. time so yeah. it's great to spend this thanksgiving dinner here with you man yes uh and pass that bottle 
All right, Mike. I think now we're ready for the second course. What do you say you uh, pass me that plate right there, if you don't mind? Yes. I think it's some yes, nice uh, warm bread. Um, yes. I'm going to get oh, a and there's fresh that napkin. over there. All right. Uh, that's, that's included in the second course. <laughs> okay. So for this second course and our second guest, his name is Otura Moon. He's the leader of the Puerto Rican musical group Ife, which fuses dance hall, electronica, rumba, and Afro-Caribbean music for an upcoming album titled The Living Dead, Ashebogbo Egun. I hope I said that right. Which is out right now if you want to check it out on Spotify and everywhere else. We talk about the mixing between his African-American lifestyle and Indiana, the United States to then interweave it with the Puerto Rican culture and how black and brown, brown and black fuse together to create a unique sound in the music industry. Welcome, Otura Moon, to the Brown and Black Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Otura, I understand um, you have a musical group called Ife that is from Puerto Rico. Um, and I've already heard, you know, a lot of your music. And, man, it's just different than a lot of the stuff that I've heard because there's beats that sound familiar but not together like that. You know, you've created, like, a very unique sound, and it's interesting and fascinating to me. Um you are in Puerto Rico, but you're an African-American man living, who lived in Indiana. So tell me, when did you decide to leave the United States of America and head over to Puerto Rico? That is part of the North America, but it's a whole different situation with Puerto Rico. It's more Latino. People speak Spanish. There's that identity of being Latino there and Puerto Rican, and that means something. How did you end up getting to Puerto Rico and starting IFE? I suppose I've been living in Puerto Rico for about 21 or 22 years at this point. So uh, I, I should probably preface the conversation with that. Um, I uh, ended up, I grew up in Indiana. So I was born in Hammond, Indiana. And then I grew up in like a little small town uh, about three hours uh, east of Chicago, um, you know, for the first 18 years of my life. Uh, and then I went to the South to study at the University of North Texas on a drumline scholarship in 1993. And I was in, uh, you know, kind of like the Dallas metro area from 93 until 99. And in 99, I relocated to Puerto Rico. What was in Puerto Rico? Was there a girl, family, friends? I didn't know anything about it, man. And, and so I jumped on the plane with like 150 bucks because I thought wow. I, I was going to be able to ball out with 150. Uh, and... I went for two weeks and I took my skateboard and like a, a bag of mixtapes and I was just going to like, you know, meet people and skate and hang out and, you know, ball out with my $150. And, and uh, yeah, you know, obviously it wasn't that, there wasn't that kind of situation. It's the same American dollar. And so I ended up sleeping on the street for like the first week. And then after wow. that, like some people that I made friends with, basically one of the girls offered me like the couch and the keys to the crib for like another week. and um. Yeah, I did two weeks and, and left. And that was in 1997. 
uh, I was really blown away by like a kind of a sense of brother and sisterhood that I felt uh, from folks on the island. And it was also the first time I had been out of the U.S. for an extended period of time. And so mm-hmm. that whole like racial caste system, which is the U.S., uh, that system isn't in play in the same way in Puerto Rico. So there, now there is institutional racism, you know. How would you uh, describe it? How would you describe it in Puerto Rico? I mean, it's the same animal. It's just that, like, you can't get a consensus from Puerto Ricans as, as to, like, you know, uh, what race they are in the way that, like, white people understand it, right? So uh, also, um, you know, it, like, if you the, – the proof is kind of in the pudding, right? So if you pull up a, a photo of, like, the Senate from any year, you know, the faces you're going to see are faces that are phenotypically white, Right. Um, and if you juxtapose that against like the census in 2000, well, 85% of everyone on the island said that they were white. And we know that phenotypically that's just kind of not the case, you know? So, um, so there's that like desire to escape blackness. And then there's like a, a, but there's also sort of the, not the tendency to define yourself racially first like we do in the United States. That's like sort of our mm-hmm. first, are you a guy or a girl? And what color are you? That's kind right. of like the starting <laughs> questions there. And, and everybody's identity is built around that, you know? Um, and so it's not quite the same way in Puerto Rico in terms of race, maybe not being the defining factor, but the problem with having the ambiguity is that you are unable to develop the institutions to fight institutional racism. So, right, because yeah. in their heads it doesn't exist. We're just all ambiguous, so there's no need to correct something that is not wrong. Yet, while, we know. while those forces are working against this exactly. group of people in the same speed and force and vigor that it's working all the time in, in, in the United States and the Western world in general. They just, it's like they've been gaslighted into thinking that, that it's not happening. And also, like, the people that do know that it's happening are in no hurry to like fix you know, it yeah fix it you know because they're they're you know benefiting from it so so how would you say that these experiences influenced your music and the creation of Ife? in 1999 uh i moved to puerto rico and i was already djing for a living and and it was a really easy job for me to like cross over because i wasn't like a you know like one of these guys like that was like you know, I was on the mic. I was just like cutting the records and mixing. And I was like, not like the, like the talking hype man. And I was really good at it, you know? So I didn't it, like, if I just played the records, like we were good, you know what I mean? And it was like at the time when nineties hip hop was still like a real thing in the hood out there and reggaeton hadn't completely taken over. So folks were into dance hall and I could just kind of slide right in. I was really good at that. And so I just found a home in the music community really quickly, you know? Oh, wow. Um, you know, uh, I was, I moved to old San Juan and like, that's part of like, there's a kind of really famous neighborhood called La Pela, which is like kind of a super famous hood that's out there. that's really connected with old San Juan. And so all those kids were coming to my uh, hip hop nights you know, because they were into Mob Deep and I was the only one in the neighborhood like playing Mob Deep and you know, the <laughs> woo and all that. So, you know, uh, it, I just kind of met everybody. And it's, it's like a real small town, you know what I mean, in that sense. And so 
uh, I was able to sort of just jump right in there, you know. Um, well, you know, I hear that that the that Ife sounds like dancehall, electronica, rumba, Afro Caribbean right. music. Right. Would you would would you would you say that that description is accurate? Yeah, I, I would say it's one of the more accurate ones I've heard. after like maybe camera purple haze uh, hmm. you know uh, why was that i just i think that like hip-hop is kind of like young man's game you know like kind of like punk rock is like like you just lose your your like rebelness yeah you lose uh -huh. your rebelness after a certain point in time and so like Plus, I didn't like working with rappers. Like, the best rappers are the ones that are the craziest and, like, the most unpredictable and just really raw energy. But I'm part of a tradition that's more into, like, mastering a craft and the mm -hmm. idea that, like, you know, um, you know, and, and, like, discipline. I like discipline. You know? And, and so right. – uh, Sometimes that's not the case. Like, with the great rappers are going to be folks that are just – not that they haven't mastered a craft, but they're, like – volatile individuals you know and, right. and and sometimes like that that's a hard energy to just be around you know um yeah trying to get something done you know and and, and so i kind of grew out of it in terms of working with rappers and then also like the more i was around hip-hop the less i believed it right like there was a point in time where i believed what common was saying i believed that he believed it or I believed what Erica was saying, and I believed that she believed it. But the more I was around the music industry, the less I believed anyone, you know? And so... Wow, interesting. I just feel like there's... Capitalism sort of ruins everything, you know? There's like an incentive... <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> there's an incentive to say the things that are going to sell. And once you've like said the same things for a while, people expect you to continue to sing it because that's your lane. And if you leave that lane, then you leave your financial stability. And many people are, are going to continue a rhetoric, even though they might not even believe it in its entirety, in order to maintain a financial sense of stability. And so I just feel that like messages, especially in hip hop, are more marketing than they are truth. You know, and my example for that would be, uh, uh, you know, let's say, um, uh, this is America by, you know, uh, Childish Gambino, right? I didn't, I couldn't name a lyric in a song other than this is America. This is America. Like I'm, cause I'm not a fan of rap, you know, but if I think anything for sure, it's just nobody fucking knows, has any idea. He was like, well, they weren't listening at all because he told you what America was a year and a half ago. <laughs> so, so after George Floyd was killed, how are you going to ask the question, is this us? 
is this America? Is this who we are? Motherfucker, we told you in a pop song that sold millions of records what America was, right? Like, like, like not even like... Denial, denial. Yeah, not even like, this is what maybe it is. No, he, like the, the title of the song was This Is America. And that went on to be a huge commercial success for him. He went to Coachella and, you know, thousands of white people sang along with the song and black folks celebrated it and it was at Grammys and this and that. But a, a year and a half later, when the shit goes ham over here, we're like, white people are like, wait a minute, is this, is this who we are? Oh, come on, man. You know? And so for me, that's a testament that like, as soon as like corporate America co-ops your message, it's done. So as soon as they paint Black Lives Matter in the street in D.C., like we, we, we're going to paint that, that message is, is done, you know. And This Is America is done as soon as like it becomes a commodity. So what about art versus commerce and you being a musician that needs to make a living off of that commerce? I, I don't know what the solution is, but I, for me, like as a as like an artist, I just feel like I'm never going to be famous, right? Like I, I'm never going to be, um, I don't know, like, like, like famous in the way that I understood it maybe in the nineties or, or, or whatever. Like, yeah, I might like, I might, you know, uh, be able to tour and, and play clubs and do things and have an audience, but like, I'm never going to be famous. And, and so the point of it shouldn't be to be that, Right. The point of it for me at this point should be to to cause political change. Mm. Right. And so I have to focus my art on doing the most I can do to be of service to people. And so that's where the focus needs to be. And if I'm being if I like do the math and I'm like, OK, what I'm doing right now is is being of service, then OK. And then the other end of it is how do I be of service without like hurting other people, you know, and, right. and so I did ask myself at some point, like, you know, let's say a year or two ago, let's two years ago, I was like, wow, man, um, what gives me the right to put my, you know, put six or seven people in an airplane and fly them around the world when we're in the middle of like a, a, a you know, a, a climate crisis, you know, what gives me the right to do that for my little music, you know, like, really, right. <laughs> you know, um, and I know that I like, but the, the, the industry is like, no, you've got to do that or you're not going to be successful, right? Like you've got to work with the, uh, this booking agency or you're going to be locked out of the club or you've got to like put yourself out on the track and play these festivals uh, that aren't really going to pay you that much money that aren't really like la da 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 while agencies collect, promoters collect, like the backline people collect, so-and-so collects, and it's like a, an industry, you know what I'm saying? And that's the industry. Well, f first of all, wow, you know, I watch a documentary on you, I listen to your music, I listen to interviews with you, I feel like I know you now. So, <laughs> I, I, uh, but um, thank you for being on the show. I, I definitely want to ask you about um, your influences, and, you know, I'm sure Jack told you the theme of our show and why we do this show. Uh, I'm just curious blending these two cultures that one of the things we've talked about here on the show, you know, Latinos don't always embrace their blackness. They don't always embrace being black for you embracing, you know, you, you, if I saw you, I might think you were Latino before I think you were African-American. So whatever that would mean, uh, what are your thoughts on how music and, and these two cultures coming together, what has it shown you about us, about music, the power of music? 
And about that fusion of both. That fusion of both, yes. I I was first attracted to Latin America uh, because of, it was almost like like an other phenomenon, right? Like, I, I felt like I had an understanding of Black America and I had an understanding of White America, but I just didn't understand Latin America at all. And there was also a language barrier. So you had kind of like these cultural separations that were there from like, maybe like a racial caste system, if you will, like, I felt that I sort of abstracted my connection to Africa, right? So I, I, I knew that my ancestors came from there. I knew that my story uh, had its roots there. And I was searching uh, for a connection to those things in a real way. And what I didn't realize was that, like, my connection to the motherland doesn't go directly from Indiana to West Africa, that that story passes through the Caribbean and that part of my story is there as well, right? And so the first time I really came in contact with the Caribbean in a real way, as opposed to just listening to dancehall music, which is something I was into, was going to Puerto Rico, right? And so the first time I was there in 97, I saw like, or I heard uh, salsa, I heard, um, you know, merengue, I heard uh, bachata, you know, I, I heard rumba, I heard reggaeton, I heard all these musics for the first time and saw people performing them. And I was already a drummer, you know, I was a drum set player, but I was into like, you know, hip hop and funk and soul and jazz. And But I remember really liking a, 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 a Tito Puente CD that my father had given me when I was in high school. Yeah. And, and so I liked it so much that I put together like a Latin drum group at my little high school and tried to like teach the kids how to play the rhythms that I heard. So I was really into it. Uh, but I, you know, I would like, didn't know any Puerto Ricans or Cubans. Like they didn't go to my high school. So I didn't just didn't know, you know? So, uh, when I got there in 1997, the musical experiences blew me away. And when I moved there, you know, I just went with what I knew and it was sort of like my vision of the world as a black American transported into Puerto Rico. So right off the bat, I was like, I see black folks coming up the street. I'm crossing over. I'm saying, hello, little do I know they're Dominican. And they don't, they're like, why is he talking to me? Like, why is he, you know what So, you know, I had to like relearn how to sort of walk through the world, you know? And at some point, like probably at night, the end of 1999, I got booked to play a party that was in St. Thomas where we were on a boat and, on the boat was me as a DJ and then a group of uh, Puerto Ricans who were playing Cuban rumba and most of them were Santeros. Uh, uh-huh. and, and then uh, a, a West African drummer and dancer who uh, was Yoruban. And so we were all staying in the same hotel and watching like the Puerto Ricans communicate with the, with the Nigerian was just crazy because the, the, the Puerto Ricans were singing in Yoruba and the Nigerian was like, God damn, like you all sound like my great, great grandfather. And this, and like hearing that communication there for me being a brother from Indiana, that just blew me away, you know, cause wow. here I see like my neighbors in Puerto Rico have something that I've always wanted and I've never been able to just grab it. I've been able to abstract my way around it, watch movies about it, read about it, but I've never had it, you know? And they have it. And, and, and so the idea that that language could persevere like that was just, you know, mind-blowing for me. Now, I saw religion at that time as a form of control. And so I could not, like, really grasp it. 
and make it part of my process because I just thought religion was a form of control. And I thought that because I had seen the way that Christianity was used as a form of colonial uh, control, you know, historically. And I just like, you know, it's like marketing again, like, well, why do I like this? Why am I, why do I know this prayer? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, why have I been taught this? Like, you know, I, why have I been led in this direction? Why has everyone been led in this direction? You know what I mean? And, and so those are questions that I, I was asking at a young age. And so it was hard for me to like take a practice that is actually powerful and beneficial like Christianity, but be able to separate it from what I thought was a history of, of colonial sort of beating. <laughs> Now, Dura, you have a new single called Music for Egun Movement 2, which is the first track of the uh, upcoming EP, The Living Dead, uh, Ashe Bogbo Egun, which you'll tell me what that means. I think it has the power of the deceased. Tell me about the song, the track. What does this music mean for you at this stage of your career? The record's called The Living Dead, and the, the sort of subtitle is Ashe Bogbo Egun. And Ashe Bogbo Egun means... Uh, roughly translated would be all power to the deceased. Um, and so uh, in, in our practice, we sort of think about the ancestors as a, 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 like an, a, an energy and, and a group that we communicate with on a regular basis. So every morning, the first thing I do when I wake up is I go to my ancestor altars. I have two of them in the house. I greet everyone by name. I ask for their blessings. I let them know what I'm going to do today. And I ask for their blessings and the things that I'm going to do. And I pray for their light and elevation, right? So we have like a, 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 a relationship of like, Mutual aid, if you will, in that sense, right? Everything that I do, I ask for the blessing of my ancestors so that I can make that happen. And my behavior in everyday life, I try and behave in a way that honors them, right? And so it's a, it's a living relationship. And so I tried to like kind of make a flip on the kind of zombie, the living dead or whatever, but make a flip on it in the sense that like, no, uh, are, these ancestors are, are a living active force in my life and death is not the end, right? Um, and so there's a whole like list of or group of songs that I sing to venerate my ancestors and all the practitioners that are in this uh, religious practice with me basically know these songs because they're songs that we sing in ritual all the time for like a variety of functions, right? So singing those songs has always been something that gives me a, a tremendous amount of peace and, um, and strength, you know? And so what I wanted to do was take some of those songs and, you know, interpret them uh, in the way that I work to interpret music in Ife, which is sort of taking like traditional framework, right? In terms of like, like uh, how to play a certain pattern or how to play a certain genre of music, but I'll take the framework and I won't change it at all, but I'll change the sounds. And so the sounds are now, instead of like acoustic drum sounds, they're like, you know, 808 basses and, you know, snaps and claps and like these sounds that like kids would immediately recognize as like their music, right? So a lot of times if you were to play traditional drum stuff for a group of kids, they're like, oh yeah, but as soon as they hear that sub that comes out in trap, they're like, oh, you know what I'm saying? So they, they like can gravitate towards that. And that was sort of my idea in 2015 was like, hey, I want to make a music that can 
improvise that can move in the way that traditional African music can move, but that is electronic, you know, and electronic music doesn't typically do that because it's programmed. So I had to try to find a way to make the music without it being programmed on a grid. And ultimately what I decided to do was to add electronic sensors to acoustic drums and then play them as electronic instruments by people who already knew how to play all of those rhythms for years and years and years because that was their line of like musicianship. So instead of having to train people how to play like jazz or whatever, you just grab musicians that already know how to play Cuban rumba, that they already know how to play bata. You sit them down, I'll electrify the drums, and I don't have to show them what to do because they already know how to do it. I'm going to change the sounds of it. And so that's what I did with these three songs for the ancestors. I basically learned how to play them all acoustically, and then I played them electronically. And the, the, the difference between probably the way that they, they sort of act as acoustic versus electronic is acoustically, drums are atonal. You know, now we say that they're talking because they have a conversation between them rhythmically, you know, that's a real conversation and often mimics prayer, right? Uh, or is understood as part of prayer. But what I've done is like kept the prayer rhythmically intact, but now the drums are able to communicate melodically and harmonically as well. So it's like having like three pianos playing instead of three drums, if you will, right? So there's a new conversation harmonically and melodically that I made up for my songs, but I mean, a better piano player could make up better ones, I suppose, you know what I mean? So but basically like, I'm doing what I know how to do as a drummer, but trying to take it farther as an experience, you know? And then, but keeping it intact, like the prayers are the same, the drum rhythms are the same, and that's so that like, what happens is the same if you get what I'm saying, because like, it's, it's, it's not so much about the words or the rhythms themselves, it's what happens when you put them all together and that intention that I didn't create, right? So I'm not gonna try and, 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 and muck it up with like changing how the drums speak to each other or what the prayers are doing or whatever, because it's about all of those things coming together to create the sensation that you're looking for. And the sensation for me is a sensation of tremendous peace and also a, a reconocimiento or recognizing of my ancestors. I, I see you, you know, and you hear me, you know, and, and, and we are acknowledging each other right now. This I'm That's doing. Beautiful. You, you know? That's and beautiful. That's so, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So sonically, like, I think like functionality wise, it's doing that, but sonically it's doing something new and also maybe like cracking the door for folks that like wouldn't be interested in acoustic drum music because they feel that that's like I don't know like National Geographic shit or something you know like you know I don't know you know that's like an ignorant way to, to put it out there but like I mean I, I know how I was was the kid you know it, like my world was as big as the stuff that was around me and that stuff wasn't around you know so right
Well, I guess I want to ask you a slightly esoteric question about uh, the power of music. You know, the idea of taking, um, you know, these electronic percussive sounds and, and putting them to, to a worship song. Uh, I love it. But I'm curious, as a musician, and especially exploring different musics uh, or musical styles from different cultures as you have, what are your thoughts on just the intrinsic uh, ability or connection that we have to music, how music can change our mood. You can hear someone singing in a language you don't know, but you completely understand their intent. Uh, the language of music, what are your thoughts on, on that? Especially because you've brought these languages to, together to show that really it's all one language. I'm intentionally building a musical house that has several doors and entrances and levels, you know, and so um, thematically, there are things that I'm like watching, like Pinky in the Brain, or one of these cartoons where, like, you're watching your kid watch it, and you're like, "Wow, that went right over her head!" Like, she has no idea what he was talking about, or whatever. So I, it's it's really bad to communicate to compare it to cartoons, but like, you know, there's definitely messages that are in the music that only initiates would get. Only even certain initiates, like only Baba Laos would understand this particular message. Santeros would get this. People that know a little bit about the religion might get this. People that don't know anything about it might get this, like blah, blah, blah. And, and then on and on and on. So on a religious end, it's, it's a stacked house. But even beyond that, like I know that I'm communicating in three different languages too, you know. So, you know, if like there's folks that are Yoruba, like, speakers like because ethnic they're ethnically yoruban that are christian that hit me up mm. and they they like the music although they don't want anything to do with the religion you know they're, they're, they're like they love it you know um and the word ife isn't a religious word it means love love for art and culture uh, from what i understand right um i don't know like what the ramifications like how you would use it like, in many different settings mm. you know what i'm saying but like it basically means love, but it also can be substituted for uh, expansion. And when I made the music, I was only trying to make a music that communicated love and expansion in modern sounds. That was the goal, right? And so that's, and it's still the goal. So I, I, I like, that's what I was trying to do, generally speaking. And, and so I'll get folks from like Italy. Like I had somebody hit me up from Italy the other day, which is a cancer patient. She's like, hey, I'm really having a hard time. Like, da, da, da. when I listen to your music, it makes me feel uh, good. And, and thank you so much for this. And, you know, whatever. Like people from all over the, the world have hit me up that like have felt something that the, the music has been in service of some way. So if I have to peel it back to what I was talking about in terms of what the goal is for me, it, it's just that like if, you know, I feel like I've done it once with the first LP, like the, the, the music I know has been of service to people. It's not like a lot of people, but you know, it, it's been of service and that's enough for me, you know? Um, and I, I, when I made this thing, like these are songs that as practitioners, we all sort of sing, but like I've sung these songs with tears in my mouth. Like when my mentor passed away, like that's I'll light a candle and I'm going to sing a new song. And, and, and it's been a, a tremendous use to me. And I realized that like the music is a, a bit like, like Santeria music in general or the Ocha music, it, you kind of got to look for it unless you're like in that vein or maybe you, you need to be like an NPR listener or something like, you know, like it's just not like you, you, you got to kind of search it out a little bit, but because 
Ife has been able to sort of like reach a bunch of different people. I'm aware that like we did a song for Odudua, for example, on the first record. I figured that like our version of Odudua is going to be the one that a lot of people hear for the first time. Right. And so I, I'm, I want to be faithful to the way that the songs are interpreted and played so that like when you do hear it for the first time, the meaning and the impact and all those things hit you in the right way, in the way they, they hit me by Mercedes Valdez's version when I heard it the first time she sang it, you know? So I'm, a, I'm aware that I, I have a responsibility there and I try, I take that super seriously, but like I, I, I think that the only thing that I was able to do at this moment uh, as, you know, we're coming up on, you know, I don't even know what it is at this point in time, 250,000 deaths, 260,000 in the U.S. Like, you know, uh, worldwide, it's been a, a year of, of, of people struggling with loss. I mean, I was on the phone with my best friend 10 minutes before you guys. I talked to you guys and, you know, he's got a daughter in the hospital right now. It's on a, 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 a you know, breathing tube, you know. So it's rough, man. And I just felt like this music was the only thing I could do to, to put something out at this moment that could be of service to people. And I felt that it, it, hopefully it would be. And so that's why at this moment I'm releasing The Living Dead, Achebobuegun, is to uh, just get this music out there, man. You know, uh, and to perhaps a group of people that don't know it, but then also to perhaps a group of people that do. I do think that the music is universal and, and most of this record is in Yoruba, but I do feel like people can hear the music and they're going to catch like the sentiment behind it, because it's actually beyond just the words, you know? So the drum patterns are also saying a prayer and that is at work, whether you realize it or not, you know? Well, Otura, uh, the new single is called Music for Egun Movement 2, which is the first track of the upcoming EP, The Living Dead, Ashebogbo Egun. I'm not sure if I've said that uh, correctly, but uh, you, you it comes you out. You nailed it. You, yeah, you, all you right. nailed it, you nailed it, man. <laughs> Take a care, guys. That's it for this Brown and Black Thanksgiving episode. We'd like to thank Leanne Lord, Eduardo Vilaro, and Otura Moon for stopping by the show. And thank you for listening. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe to our show and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. Have a great Thanksgiving week. We hope you spend it with loved ones. And even if it's virtual, happy Thanksgiving to all. And to you too, Mike. Happy Thanksgiving, buddy. Hey, happy, happy, happy post-Thanksgiving. How's that? <laughs> That's right. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black. <laughs>